Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where our ultimate goal is to inspire, educate, and awaken your curiosity, and overall, to help you to become healthier and happier. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins who started a veg shop nearly 20 years ago. Since then, it's expanded into a social following of over one and a half million people, nearly 50 million views of our videos, nearly half a million books sold, cafes, farms, apps, courses, food products to help you to eat more veg. We speak to thought leaders, health experts, trailblazers and specialists of all kinds. From the ones you know to those you've never, ever heard of. So in my house, we've got about 30 different water bottles. We've so many of them. I didn't think there could be a way to innovate a water bottle to make you drink more water other than by design. And this is an incredible. It's an Arab water bottle. It uses scent-based technology. What's which scent-based technology? That they cool. have pods that... 70 to 90% of your, your um, taste, receptors. taste receptors actually come via your nose. So incredibly, it has these pods that sit on top of the bottle. You simply pull it up to activate it. If you don't activate it, you're simply drinking water. But the pods have different flavors of them. I can interchange them with coconut flavor, cherry flavor, peach flavor, cola. cherry cola flavor. And when I'm drinking the water, it tastes like I'm drinking peach water or cherry cola water, even though it's simply water. It's a great way of making your water more interesting to have flavoured water while not having sugar, while not using single base plastic and a great way of just making drinking water more fun. Because if you do listen to our podcast, with our podcast with Dr. Dana Cohn, um, she said that approximately 70% of people are dehydrated. So we all need to drink more water. This is a great way of making it more fun. Up are offering your discounts to our wonderful listeners, such as you. Use the code HAPPY10. Highly recommend it. Check it out. Airup.com. That gets you 10% off. And even just to give anecdotal advice on it, I bought it for my mother-in-law. She's not a very good drinker of water. She says, oh, I just don't like the taste of it. So we brought her an Arab bottle. I brought her the cherry pods and she absolutely loves it. She's drinking loads of water and she asked me to get her some new pods. So there you go. 10% off. Happy 10 on airup.com. Today's guest is the wonderful Dr. Rupi from Doctor's Kitchen. Dr. Rupi has been a medical doctor practicing with the NHS for 14 years. He's author of four best-selling books, He's got a nap and he really is, he's a doctor and he's also a chef. So he's, he's a great advocate. Great conversation. And we, the beautiful thing, Rupi came and stayed with Dave last night. We had uh, wood-fired pizza in the garden last night. We got up, we went for a swim at sunrise, did a bit of training, had coffee, went for the sauna and then just had a lovely day together. And the podcast was in person. So we got to explore loads of different topics, like from Rupi's incredible backstory where he was extremely ill and how he found the importance of food being medicine. Yeah, we talked about gratitude and the biology belief, which were things I really didn't expect would crop up. Uh, we talked about placebo effect and really camped out in terms of the practical things that you can do on a daily basis in terms of food, in terms of lifestyle choices, and just to make, make our health better and make ourselves feel better and enjoy life better. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Rupi from Doctor's Kitchen. Uh, Rupi, I've got a good one to start with. So like okay. a number of years ago, you got kickback for releasing a book around the topic of food is medicine. Uh -huh. I wonder if we talk about that, just like why you got kicked back on such an important thing. And that's something that nowadays is largely taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. And no, it's the age old truth that medicine, you know, food is, is medicine by Hippocrates himself. Yeah. 2,000 years ago. It is, yeah. And, and actually it was um, something that was really steeped in my culture as well, which I found quite odd when I got a lot of kickback around it, particularly as... The whole, so the, the reason why I got kickback is because I uh, came out with a book called Eat to Be Illness. And it's, you know, it's a bit tongue in cheek, obviously. It's a title that is meant to be slightly provocative. But when you actually dig into the details and you realize all the references in the back and the chapters that are meticulously referenced and evidence-based and the tone of voice, particularly as I was talking about topics like 
cancer, inflammation, uh, endocrinology, brain health, skin health, all these different elements. When you actually read it, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a I still believe, and, and many people who actually read the book will agree with, that it's a very nuanced and well-balanced book. The title is enough sometimes for certain people to make a, a judgment about the entire copy of everything that I stand for and I do. And I think the words food as medicine and the topic of food as medicine in 2018, which is when the book came out, so five years ago, is something that uh, a lot of people found uh, alien to them and uh, offensive in some way and almost like a way of uh, accepting the quite extreme narratives of using food as the only medicine, which is not the intention. Very different from food as medicine. Exactly. It's yeah. very, very different. And I make that distinction really clear in the book as well, which is why it was quite annoying. It was more annoying to to have these kind of like vocal people on social media talking about me as a quack doctor and all the rest of it. And just to set the record straight, you know, I've been working in the NHS for over 14 years. I'm a fully qualified general practitioner. I work in A&E and ITU. I'm completing a master's in nutritional medicine at University of Surrey. So, you know, I feel like I'm qualified enough to make a judgment call about food and its preventative medicine properties and its role in the management of certain conditions as well. It's really, really important that we talk about this. I've been raising this topic for many years. I've always stood by everything that I say. And if there is evidence to the contrary, then I'll, I'll definitely like correct myself. Mm. But nothing that I've put out thus far has required a retraction, a change in my sort of uh, perspective on things. And in fact, I enforced that when I did my, my TED talk in 2019, at the end of 2019, where I made a firm statement about what food as medicine is. It's not like this cute, quirky concept that we should That's be... romantic. It's, exactly, so yeah. To... It's not like this romantic thing that, you know, you just have some celery, some leaves, and then you magically disappear your dementia or, you know, fix your broken leg. It's nothing like that. It's actually one of the things that we should be diving more into as a medical establishment, something that we haven't used as a tool in our clinical toolbox that includes, yes, drugs, yes, surgeries, yes, psychological interventions, yes, exercise, yes, sleep, but food as well. It's a massive, massive part of the management of a whole host of conditions that cost healthcare systems billions every single year. So, you know, looking back on it now, it's kind of laughable that I was sort of, I, I, I didn't get cancelled, but there were certainly people mm. trying to cancel me back then. And I think it sets the precedent for what we see today. Like there's this, what I describe as outrage culture, where people are sort of fishing through social media or the internet, almost like looking to be triggered for something. Now, I don't want to say that there aren't things that should appropriately trigger people. There's still lots of injustices in the world. But that's not one of them, man. Mm -hmm. Like this is something that is quite obvious, and the terminology, just to bring it back to food as medicine, is something that is even more so accepted by traditional establishments in medicine these days. So you have people like Dr. Katz from Tufts University talking about food as medicine in papers like uh, JAMA. Uh, we have BMJ editorials talking about the use of food as medicine. We have medically tailored meals that have been piloted in the states. 
We have food on prescription. Uh, so fruits and vegetables on prescription. I like that. Uh, like prescription, food, fruits prescription, and vegetables yeah, on prescription. There's, there's I like that. I like that you're part the of the campaign trying to get yeah, people to prescribe yeah. fruit and veg. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm literally just like a spotlight, right? So like having a, a large podcast and a relatively large audience and a big newsletter, you know, allows me to put a spotlight on things that I think are fantastic. So, you know, people like Made in Hackney, I'm a big supporter of them. People like... Um, Jonathan Pauling and the Alexander Rose Charity, who are who are doing these pilots in different uh, towns and cities across the UK, prescribing these fruits and vegetables. People like Fair Share or like food banks and Trussell Trust. You know, I just want to put a spotlight on these people because they're demonstrating to everyone about the impact of food, the magnitude of the issues that we're facing, and prescribing fruit and vegetables. I, I honestly think it's going to become the a, a, a mainstream practice across primary care. Um, and I'm surprised. And that hasn't is, is that what doctors are actually doing, or is this someone labeled their business prescribing? No, no, no. So it's a it's a pilot going on right now. Uh, the the area that I visited was in Brixton, and it's uh, basically a voucher scheme. Um, and if you go into the Alexandra Rose Charity Foundation w- website, um, you you'll learn all about it there. And they've had some Guardian articles written about it. So basically. Families that are generally on, on low income or um, usually families that are um, are on universal credit uh, or have some sort of financial uh, instability are offered these vouchers and they can only be exchanged in local fruit and veg market stores that you'll find in Brixton. So there's a couple of things that, that happen. Um, a, they can only exchange it for fresh fruits and vegetables that you tend to find in those stores. And B, it actually injects cash into that economy that is otherwise being taken away from big supermarkets and and other sort of high street chains. So there's like a knock-on effect on the general community there as well. Mm. And the early results from these uh, pilots, they weren't even looking as a primary endpoint um, to have like constipation or digestive health or uh, happiness levels as, you know, something that they were trying to uh, fix or, or help with. But these are things constantly that the families are talking about. My digestive health is better. I feel lighter in myself. I have more energy. You know, just the simple act of allowing people to buy fruit and vegetables on prescription with these things that are these vouchers that are free is having this massive effect. So that speaks to me like we should be subsidizing at least fruits and vegetables that we know have this health impact. And also we should make sure that it is part of the treatment package when we're talking to people with type 2 diabetes or who are at risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. It's really often overlooked overlooked. food and what we eat. Like it's something that's just separate. Medicine is seen as this, you know, often look, and maybe it's modern day society, we're all looking for the silver bullet. Yeah. How can I get rich quick? How can I get abs in a week? How can I, whatever, where it's like little things done consistently add up. Well, well, this is exactly why I continue to, and I want to underline the message of food as medicine, because most people see medicine as the prescription of pills and the the performance of, of surgeries and other sort of traditional interventions that you imagine in your head with someone with a white coat and a stethoscope around it. And that's super important, but food is also medicine. Food has this preventive impact. We know from all the studies, 30 years of, of really, really good research about the impact of increasing fruit. It's just a simple act of increasing fruit and vegetable consumption, deprocessing your diet, introducing more wholesome foods. All these different elements add up and they massively reduce the risk of the most costly conditions that currently are afflicting our, our financial budgets and healthcare systems, particularly in the UK and in the US as well. Yeah, I think brilliant. Wow, really, really cool. Incredible. And I think part of the issue with that is like many people 
will agree with you, but many people don't know how to cook. That, yeah. That's a huge part. Yeah. Also, also, the palate has changed so much because of the modern diet. And, like, because it's the, some, like, the, the proliferation of processed foods. Like, I think it's not just that people can't cook. I think it's that cheaper choices are processed foods. And, like, pizza and junk food is, like, our palates are so hardwired, biologically hardwired over decades to mm. crave these kind of foods. So mm. I think there's that challenge as well. So it's like, and, and I even wrote in a few questions here and I was like, right, Rupee, you are the doctor's kitchen. Like you are, <laughs> like you really are. You are all about food and empowering people to eat better food, to use it as a part of medicine, as a part of people's healing journey. And I just wondered like, how do you help people change? Like, how yeah. do you find, because that's, that's also me thing, because you could stop anyone in the street here and go, uh, well, what should I do to get healthy? And yeah. they'd probably go, oh, I probably need to eat a little bit more fruit and veg. I probably need to move a little more. I probably need to stop staying up so much late and stop drinking. Like people know what to do. Mm. But the challenge in terms of food is actually getting them to do it. And what yeah. have you found four books later and hundreds of podcast episodes later, what have you found are the big levers and as a doctor with people on a daily basis? Yeah, this is kind of what pushed me into the world of social media in the first place because I remember having a conversation with someone in clinic and we were we sat down, we were talking about his risk of prediabetes and, and the numbers that were all skew-f and stuff. And actually what happened is um, when I'd written down a whole number of recipes like uh, oats and and uh, some other salad recipes. I can't remember exactly what they were, but one of them was definitely how pretty to make cool to be getting recipes from your doctor. I know, yeah, cool. which is why I was always running late in clinic, right? Because I I got known as the doctor that would prescribe doctor recipes. And doctor talk vegetable, about, doctor vegetables, yeah, yeah. We talked to to people about food, whether it was arthritis or type two diabetes or whatever. So. I remember distinctly, I, I told him this recipe about oats. I'm like, you just add, you know, some uh, some dried fruit for sugar instead of your, your normal sugar and then some pumpkin seeds and, and some uh, other sort of healthy fats and all the rest of it. And uh, I sent him away with this piece of paper. And as he was leaving, he just turned back to me and he was like, oh, just one more thing, doctor. How do you make oats? And that's when the penny dropped for me that no. it wasn't so much that people didn't know what they should be eating. I think everyone can reasonably understand, okay, increase fruit and vegetables, you know, reduce the processing and maybe have less takeaways, that kind of thing. But we've lost culinary literacy, I think, over over the last few decades. It would have been really commonplace for nice someone. Nice word, culinary literacy. Yeah, I think, yeah. and I think like being like uh, lots of literacy, like financial literacy, culinary literacy, a whole bunch of skills that we've lost over the last few decades. And it's a really, really important thing when it comes to the battle against chronic disease. It's fundamental. It's the fundamental of our existence. Absolutely. And so when that person told me, uh, how do you cook oats? That was really the realization that it can't be enough for me to just give information. It can't even be enough for me to provide recipes. I've literally got to show people the basics of how to cook. And that's where, you know, Instagram and, and YouTube and all that kind of stuff started for me and then ultimately cookbooks. But the other thing that I've realized is that a, um, it's about consistency, not just the fact that you can make a, a salad or, you know, oats once or twice a week. It really comes down fundamentally to how consistently, how often you can eat in a way that is according to the guidelines that most people understand. So at least five fruits and vegetables per day should be actually close to 10 a day using some, some recent uh, epidemiological studies. Uh, but also getting whole, wholesome foods in and deprocessing your diet. The other thing that I want people to realize is that you are fighting a huge battle against big food companies that recognize the impact of marketing, 
that impact of uh, essentially curating uh, flavors and tastes that hit the bliss point in in your brain, right? So I don't want to mention a particular chip brand, but let's say like there is a crisp or chip brand that everyone recognizes. Um, they have spent literally millions honing the impact of the crunch, the texture, the flavor, the salt to sweet ratio to hit what they describe as the bliss point. And there are studies on this actually as well. And they market the hell of it, out, the hell out of it by leaning into what people love, the aspirational nature of like pop stars or physician, uh, uh, musicians or sports stars. Like there is a reason why all these different major, major companies have these figureheads is because they know when you're, when you're hit with all these different things, the taste of it, the marketing of it, the appeal of it, the fun nature of it, the characters, all that kind of stuff, you're going to be driven to eating those kind of products. And so you are fighting against that. And we've lost, I think, the appreciation for those bitter tones, those bitter flavors in like we natural were dandelion foods. leaves earlier. Exactly. Yeah. We just went to your, your farm and I'm like, I'm literally having my mind blown by all these different flavors because I'm like dialed in and I'm intuitive to know about like the polyphenol content of some of the veg that we were eating, like the pak choy flowers and stuff. It's amazing. And that for me is like in incredible, but it takes time to retrain your taste buds to appreciate those bitter notes if you're coming from a very processed diet, which is over here, which is, you know, full of fillers and artificial flavors. You know, your brain needs to adapt to-, to And isn't that more. a huge part of it is that like, I think it was called, what was your man, Doug Lyle, who coined the phrase, the pleasure trap that we're like, mm. we're, we're the, we're evolved to crave, like to be energy efficient, to seek yeah. pleasure and avoid pain. And it's natural because energy efficient is so wired into us. We're seeking for foods that are higher in calories because they're going to give us a greater yeah. serotonin release yeah, ultimately. Yeah. And that that's part of the problem that pre-industrial revolution, we ate whole foods or we ate food that we killed if we ate animal foods versus a modern day society we now have foods with the fiber removed the fat at that beautiful bliss point salt yeah, sweet yeah. Oh, yeah delicious i think that's part of the problem isn't it is largely down to just the proliferation of processed foods and uh, well i think statistically it's something like 55 percent of the calories in the uk are ultra processed foods and it's increasing year on year yeah. and it's something similar in ireland it wouldn't surprise me if it's probably even higher than that you know the if you look at the abundance of ultra high processed foods but I think there is like a, a way out and, I, and it, it comes down to A, being aware of the fact that we are designed to, to love foods that oh, are high calorie, it. high salt, high sugar, uh, but then retraining your taste buds to appreciate all those other whole natural foods that we understand, but also understanding that there are huge um, insidious pressures on your brain. As soon as you go into a supermarket, as soon as you uh, see an advert on TV, which is why it, it's amazing that we haven't banned junk food ads and that's been kicked down the road to October to 2025 now, which I think was one of the triggers for our foods are in England to, to resign. Because he was like, this insane inaction by the government is just, just speaks of uh, the lobbying pressures from big food. The fact that we haven't banned junk food advertising when we know it has a direct correlation with people consuming more of these products, people who are usually in the most vulnerable positions where they're uh, dealing with financial pressures, et cetera, Th that, that just should not be allowed. It, you know, it's, it's something that um, is, is pretty devastating, I think, for a lot of people who find themselves in a poverty trap, but also a health poverty trap as well. Um, 
but that, that once you understand that, then you can make conscious decisions to choose the foods that actually serve your health and choose a path that actually makes your, uh, your, your determines a, a better health picture for you. Yeah. Wow. And then in, in terms of like, what role do you find the role of community? Like, because we're all ultimately the product of our environment. And part of the problem nowadays is that our environment is, as Dave, or you mentioned both, that it's probably over half of what everyone's eaten are ultra processed mm. foods and sedentary environment. And even Dan Butner will often say the single biggest thing you can do for happiness is to move to a happier place. Yeah, yeah. And like, I wonder in terms of like, when you talk about these kind of places where people are impoverished in terms of their access to health, how can people create a community around that's more likely to support them to be healthier? Like, because I think that's fundamentally it is that the the average or the norm culturally that's being propagated is to eat processed foods, mm. to be lazy and just to consume. And it's not by, it's not by agency. It's just by that's the nature of the environment. Like yeah. our, our modern lifestyle, people are like, and we're victims to it too. Like everyone is that just life is busy. It's demanding. You know, we're all working along and juggling all the various balls of life and food choices tend to be secondary. Whereas when there was more space and time, people grew a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to like, you know, just uh, helicopter everyone over to Greystones and you know, <laughs> yeah. experience some of the uh, delights you guys have got here. I mean, you're pretty much in like a blue zone uh, centric environment, right? You've got the sea, you've got beautiful hills, you've got beautiful produce, you've got beautiful people here. And I think about it through the lens of like uh, an urbanite who doesn't have the option to move out of the city because, you know, they're working a couple of jobs or their family here, all their social circles are here. There are some really interesting examples of how people have built community around uh, their health center or just generally. Um, I think one of the pilot projects that the prescribing fruit and vegetables is one because you have health centers that are not necessarily in a doctor's surgery but you'll find them in like barbershops uh, wow. or yeah, or like they'll just pop up blood pressure clinics in church, for example. So where you find people naturally congregating, they're almost like using guerrilla tactics to turn this into like a bit of a health intervention where they can talk to them about blood pressure monitoring or food or all the other things as well. Um, there's urban gardens that I've noticed. So popping up in uh, actually uh, not to, not to say that all GP surgeries need to have, an edible garden, but there's there's some in Lambeth where it's there's so a amazing. Community. Like it's so not when you think when you think yeah. medical environment, you think sterile. You think yeah, yeah, you yeah. know even the word clinic. It's like oh shit, what do I have to dress yeah. up for clinic? You know that way. Whereas yeah. when you talk about garden, it's nearly like polar opposites. Yeah. Like it brings fun, vitality, creativity, which typically and wild. It brings yeah. Wild. yeah, wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's associated. like a centre of excellence called Bromley by Bow in uh, East London. It's a GP surgery. I believe it's uh, Sam Everington who who runs it. And um, they are seen as like the pinnacle of what every GP surgery could aspire to. Uh, so they do have a GP surgery and they're in a clinic and they have, you know, your normal sort of health visits, vaccinations for kids, all that kind of stuff. But they have like an art studio, a yoga room, uh, a garden um they have these sculptures in the courtyard and it's literally it bromley by bow which is like proper east london right um so th there are uh, amazing examples of how these centers have created community in the busiest of spaces like london inner city london um there's also 
I, I, I'm inspired by the incredible edible guys. I don't know if you've come across them before. So you've got to make a trip to Todmorden. It's this market town in the middle of... Um, Todmorden. 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 Oh, is that the Todmedod chickpeas? The no, peas? No, 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 no. You're thinking of Hodmedods. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but those are good as well. Uh, no, Todmorden is a market town. Uh, I believe it's outside uh, Manchester. Beautiful part of the country. And... Um, uh, yeah, it's it's like, you know, rolling hills, uh, a wonderful market square, all that kind of stuff. And they just decided to turn it into an, an, an edible city. And so you just had loads of different like corn uh, growing near the police station. You had these edible herbs around the trains. Uh, everywhere you walked, there'd be like little signs saying you can pick this and eat this. They removed all the shrubs outside like hospitals, for example, and they just planted like, you know, kale or whatever. And they would just have these growers just walking around and just planting things everywhere. And they didn't ask for permission. They didn't go to the council. There's an amazing TED talk about it. You should just Google wow. ed incredible edible TEDx talk. Incredible edible. Yeah. So and cool. it's amazing. Amazing. Um, uh, I had them on my podcast recently. And uh, yeah, the, it's the, the ultimate guerrilla gardening. Yeah, ultimate guerrilla gardening. And it's like, it's guerrilla healthcare if you think about it, right? You're getting people that connection with food that we've kind of lost. Like I, I, my, my, both my parents are from Punjab. Um, my dad grew up on a farm, um, you know. And Punjab's India. Punjab's in India. Case, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Near Punjab's Chandigarh. India. Uh, no, I'm Jalanda. So Chandigarh is like another state, yeah. uh, but s similar sort of, you know, surroundings and stuff. And he would always tell me about like sweet potato and the well that we had and the buffaloes that would use for milk and stuff. And, you know, he painted this idyllic landscape of the sugar cane and, and all this kind of stuff. And we had this like real connection with food. And when he moved to England, when he was in 25, I think, it was a, a proper culture shock. Here he is, a farm boy in the middle of inner city London. And instead of like cooking by fire or watching his mum prepare meals and stuff, you know, we're cooking in you know, a kitchen with a, a gadget, uh, you know, a microwave, and all these, all these things that we didn't have in, in India. So, you know, I look at my dad's experience of going from what is quite a peasant and, and rural environment to inner city London as that massive shift that's actually happened to all of us over the last hundred years. And that shift is something that we need to sort of appreciate all the benefits for, but we have to be cognizant of the cons, which are the lack of connection that we have with food, the lack of uh, the ability for us to grow like my, my growing skills are terrible actually you guys taking me around the farm just showed me like my lack of connection where food comes from like I, I've gone further down the chain where I, I know how to cook anything you, you give me you know whether it's an onion and garlic I can make something delicious but I need to go further down that chain so I actually understand how the garlic's grown what kind of seeds you use what kind of temperatures the seasonality of the food all those different things I think it's that connection with their food gives us a lot more meaning I think that's part of the part of one of the many challenges of modern day society is that we're so disconnected right, from, from our food sources. Yeah. And I think the more connected we are to our food source, the more we connect and understand the simple pleasures. Because like if you, you know, if you say, say, for example, we've tomato plants that we just planted there this week and they're quite spindly and leggy and tall looking. And you might look at it and go, poor little tomato plant looks awful. But if you realise <laughs> it took two months already that they've been grown in the sprout farm, yeah. like the amount of work. And when you get a tomato, it's like... 
it's a tomato. <laughs> oh my God. Like there's so much joy and celebration over it. Whereas you buy them in the supermarket and you, you go, got a tub of them for 150. Oh, they were 150. Jeez, they were like 99 cent last. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Yeah, you like that appreciation, right? You yeah, become more price sensitive and less sensitive to the amount of effort and, and similarly if you appreciate and, the effort you suddenly value the simplicity of yeah. it it's like wow i understand yeah. why that costs what it does because it took so much blood sweat tears to actually get that help that crop to come into totally, fruition yeah. and, and how yeah. do you so okay as a medical doctor as doctor's kitchen you know yeah. you, you this has been your your work for the last five years at least like, what do you see as the pillars to health? Like, as because you you cross both worlds, because obviously yeah. you've got the traditional medical hat, and then you've very much been exposed to the lifestyle aspect and the yeah. other pillars of health. Like, what do you see as the pillars to health now? And where where are we kind of struggling most when you see patients in a day? Where are the ones? Well, the fact that you've got doctor's kitchen probably implies the answer. But over to you, Rupi. Yeah, you know, I I think everyone's got their bias, right? Uh, everyone uh, has sort of like their flavor of what they feel is the most important foundation or the most important pillar or the most important you know uh, area that we should be focusing on and actually you know i think everyone will understand it's a blend of everything and for different people it's different things so for me you know it's not necessarily nutrition because i think i've ticked all the boxes it wasn't always like that certainly 15 years ago when i had my own health issues that sort of like triggered my whole journey through learning about nutrition, talking to patients about it, and then ultimately, you know, writing and talking about it as much as possible. Yeah, how did you get into it? Was it, was, was it largely that you had health issues? And, yeah, yeah. And even though you'd been a trained medical doctor, you'd never really been exposed to food and yeah. nutrition and how it could be medicine. Yeah, totally. I mean, my exposure to food as medicine really came uh, during my childhood. So both my parents from India, um, Ayurvedic culture, which is like this traditional practice of, of medicine that is actually quite embedded in conventional medicine within Indian practice, actually. Um, that was always sort of steeped in my upbringing, whether it's like haldi tea, which is turmeric tea, or, you know, turmeric lattes now that everyone's making, uh, or whether it was like clove when I had a toothache, or, you know, a particular type of herb blend uh, if I found myself constipated as a kid. Like, I still don't know what was in this herb blend, actually. Uh, but my mum and dad would prepare it for me and it would just sort me out straight away. So, you know, all these sort of like traditional remedies were always sort of inbuilt in my upbringing. And what what actually inspired me to go into medicine, um, which is something neither of my parents wanted me to go into, uh, which is very unusual for Indian parents because um, they're more business uh, focused, uh, was my mum getting ill herself. Uh, reversing her in condition using food and lifestyle. Um, and I saw her overcome that. I saw her overcome uh, essentially uh, anaphylactic uh, allergy condition that was um, idiopathic, i.e. funky, smart word for we don't know why you're having these allergy attacks. And so what she did was um, essentially an elimination diet. So she took out all the potential triggers from her diet. So she had a very, very restrictive diet. I remember this vividly because I was 11 or 12 at the time. And um, she took it out, all of it out of her diet. So she removed all the potential triggers. She started meditating and doing yoga and all the rest of it as well. And gradually, gradually, bit by bit, she started reintroducing different foods um, such that now she can eat completely normally and she's absolutely fine. But at that point, she was essentially retraining her immune system and increasing that resilience. And I saw her come off all her medications, not have to use an EpiPen anymore. And that for me was like breathtaking. 
And that's what sparked me sort of reaching out to some of our like family friends who were GPs and doctors and lecturers and all that kind of stuff. And that's what led me into the root of medicine because I saw how my mum could heal herself and the amazing uh, information, the amazing um, uh, empathic nature of all these medical prof professionals that we had in our social uh, network. And I thought, well, I want to be a doctor. So I went to, into medicine with that sort of thinking but it was, it was never taught to, to me about the, the, the power of nutrition. It was the, the lifestyle element was completely sidelined when I went to medical school. And I went to one of the, the best medical schools in the country, if not the world. And Imperial um, College. It was Imperial College. Yeah, what a yeah. Great name. Which I'm Imperial really proud. I'm, I'm really proud of Imperial and to still say uh, Imperial because they have a lifestyle module now for year one and year two medical students. And I. I went back, uh, I think it was literally like three or four years ago to teach on it. Um, yeah, so it was, wow. it a, yeah, yeah. So I was That's one of the- coming home. I know. I was one of the first guest lecturers to, um, to, to go and lecture on the lifestyle module uh, where they're being taught about the impact of nutrition, the impact of sleep, the impact of- uh, mindset, like all these different numbers, they Sleep's they are being taught now. a good one now. for a trainee doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite an irony, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're literally being taught about, and I think the lead is um, an epidemiologist as well, uh, professor of epidemiology. So he, when he reached out to me, I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. And it's like, it's, you know, just, yeah, lots of emotions at that time. Wow. But um, my, uh, my journey, my personal journey that led me down nutrition and all these other pillars of lifestyle um, was when I got ill myself. So busy doctor three months into the job it's 2009 and uh i started getting irregular and fast heartbeats i was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation uh, which is an irregular heartbeat and usually it's an issue with could be the result of an infection it could be the result of uh, a, a malformation in your heart a structural issue within the heart um, there could be other reasons as to why you have atrial fibrillation if you're taking drugs or excess caffeine and that kind of stuff, none of which I was doing. Um, and I thought I was going to have just like a one or two episodes, but it just kept on happening. Two to three times per week, I'd be going into AF episodes where my heartbeat would go to 200 beats per minute and it would last 12 to 24 hours. And when that would happen, would, that, would you feel super stressed or what did that feel I'd like? I'd feel nauseous. I'd feel like I was going to faint. Uh, my blood pressure was probably going up and down at the time. I didn't have chest pain and I didn't have any evidence to suggest that I, I was lacking uh, blood flow to my heart. Uh, I never had the paddles on the, on the chest that you oh, see yeah. in ER, nothing like that. Uh, but I was put on medications to slow the heart down and reduce the uh, irregularity in the heart. Um, but those all have side effects as well. Mm. And I was going to have something called an ablation, which is where you put a guide wire into the part, into the um, large vessel in your in your um, groin, and they pass it into the pulmonary vein of your of your um, uh, one of the large vessels that leaves the heart. And um, it's a relatively safe procedure. But then you go through the numbers, and you're like, oh, one in one thousand uh, potentially can have like a structural issue with the heart, where you you burst through um, the the lining, and then it can cause uh, the the sac to fill with blood, and that can compress the heart, and you can have a stroke, and can have all the all these things, and you just think that was a real wake up call to me 
for when we give these and deliver these statistics to patients. And on my in my head, I'm like, oh, it's like 0.1% chance that this could happen to you. So it's, it's really low. But when you're the one receiving receiving that that those statistics, receiving that information, it's harrowing. And for a previously fit 24-year-old, you know, to have this issue, it, it was really frustrating. I felt very vulnerable. It was um it was a difficult period of in my life. But I look back on that time now, I'm like with immense gratitude. You know, it's it sparked the trajectory of my career. It has influenced my thinking around medicine as a whole. If I had not had those experiences and those dark days for uh, over a year, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't have educated myself into, you know, what, what I know about uh, medicine today. And so, it, yeah, it, it just it's taught me the power of gratitude for sure. And, and and it's amazing that like you see it in so many movies that the like and this is just an observation on life that when I think of so like anyone listening we all have crap times like in a lifetime we are all going to have so many challenges and the things in isolation we think are the most difficult challenging things and when we get through them and we look back like in retrospect we go oh my god that was such an incredible catalyst to growth yeah. or to change or whatever but in isolation it's just crap yeah but then with time you look back and go wow that was yeah that was a gift i just couldn't see it as a gift in the moment exactly you know? yeah and that's what reaffirms my belief in the power of gratitude like something that i really try and lean to every day that's why I have my gratitude list, my gratitude practice. And as a medical doctor, are there like, you know, because that rational mindset, you know, there probably can is Can you research. measure, can you quantify it? There is probably it, research yeah. to quantify it. And you know, like there probably is, you know, and you'd be one that might look for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there are ways in which you can quantify some of the the more subjective um, elements of lifestyle medicine, for sure. You know, just like a simple symptom tracker. How are you feeling? Do you feel confident? Do you feel energetic? Do you feel um, like you have purpose? And there's probably scoring systems on that. But I think it also comes down to being intuitive about these things. Um, I knew intuitively, like, I probably wasn't living the best lifestyle when I had my health conditions. Uh, and I was normal to, you know, to, to put it into context, it wasn't like I was uh, binge drinking or like, you know, taking loads of drugs or anything like that. I was just a normal, very stressed, very busy junior doctor who was having cereal for breakfast, a sandwich at lunch and like pasta, probably in a rush in the evenings and doing loads of night shifts and loads of lates and like a typical sort of journey for a, a junior doctor. But my threshold for illness was clearly different to my colleagues, right? My threshold was down here, their threshold was up here. And unfortunately, I, I used to say unfortunately, but fortunately, my threshold was lower and that forced me to really change my lifestyle, re rethink how I was living my life. I, I say this now, like uh, it almost seems as if I came to that conclusion myself. In reality, it was my mum. So my mum was like, you know, you really should look at your diet. You really should look at your lifestyle before you entertain an intervention like a like wow. an ablation yeah and, and if that came to you as a piece of advice that wasn't from your mother you know the way i certainly look at my mother and my mother can can make me see things that no one else could see particularly yeah. if you were a medical doctor yeah, yeah. you wouldn't i'm a doctor like go away i'm not yeah, gonna yeah, listen to you. Yeah, but your mother yeah, you're yeah. always gonna like she always certainly in my life that's my experience yeah yeah Mom, I, but I, I was the former i was 100 percent the former i was like you know what you're talking about like i've literally spoken to all the cardiologists all the consultants all my colleagues they're all saying i should do this this is the rational thing to do 
and you're saying something completely off that doesn't make any sense like you can't will away this very serious condition that has been diagnosed has been you know we have all the evidence base for it i've spoke i've got multiple second opinions second third fourth opinions how can you as someone who isn't medically trained be telling me reasonably that i should just you know take six months and change and tweak my diet and lifestyle and it was after a lot of discussion with her that i actually spoke to my cardiologist at the time and said look would it be okay if i do these you know changes or, or whatever um for, for a small period of time and I, I i did get their blessings um at, at a point um at some point during that journey but it was, it was tough i felt embarrassed even thinking about doing diet and lifestyle changes because it to, seemed so rudimentary. Yeah, it so very rudimentary. It does seem like that. And I, th and I, I, this is the thing. When I talk about food as medicine, just to bring it to the what we discussed at the start, I understand the indifference of medics who don't want to believe in you know food as having such well, a. It's a lot less impact. sexy. It's a lot. Less, it's a lot less. Like sexy. tech is sexy. It is, and tech is a pen and paper. Tech, tech, tech is sexy, is tech. medicines are sexy, pharmaceuticals are sexy, all these RCTs with the, the new latest drugs, these are sexy. They feel robust, right? They feel like um, this is a powerful uh, drug that I'm going to- And you're I'm on the gonna... cutting edge of technology Exactly, here. yeah. Or oh, I'm using the guidelines. I'm not going to put my head above the parapet. These are all things that that lead to decision-making. And we also practice, practice cognitive dissonance, which is like this- uncomfortable feeling where there is evidence to say the contrary like food actually has a really big impact and it can actually be a little uh, more powerful than some of the first line drugs we have for metabolic syndrome for example but that's really uncomfortable so we hold on to our preconditioned beliefs about okay yeah but we're going to start with the drugs clearly like look at the numbers so th th these are things that we all have to weigh up as human beings and we have to appreciate that you know particularly as medics we are we are uh, taught this way uh, f from a very young age. And so it's ingrained into our practice. And we look up to our seniors in a very hierarchical system it, to, to practice a certain way because you don't want to be outcast. You don't yeah, want to be seen it. as the quack. Yeah, and, and so even back to that, so your mom, so your mom was the great catalyst. She was yeah. like, "Rupee, come on, food, ma it's massive impact." In a less Irish accent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rupee, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Punjabi <laughs> accent, or is it? Has no, she got no, an English she's got accent. British accent. She's oh, she, my dad's got the Punjabi accent. Yeah, and did yeah. she did she kind of get you convince you to take a period of time off work and focus? Not on even food. off work. No. So I refused to take time off work. I didn't want it to impact my medical career. I was really strong headed at the time. Um, and uh, I refused to to take time off work, and you know every time I had, I, I'm ashamed to say it now because I don't think it's the right thing to do. But I would hide sometimes when I was having an episode, just because I didn't want to be seen as the weakling who had to like take himself off the ward and let down the team. And you know we're chronically understaffed in the NHS, so I never wanted to be that person. Um, but whilst I was doing all these changes, now I, I I didn't take time off. But I would do things very gradually. So I first thing I we were talking before about you know how we make how we enable people to make the changes that they know they should be making. And my uh, from my perspective and my experience of you know chatting and treating thousands of patients is that you have to start really really small. 
And it's exactly what I did. I looked back on how I made changes and it wasn't like overnight. I started eating green salads and pumpkin seeds and cold pressed olive oil and stuff. No, I literally just changed my cereal. That was the first thing I did. So instead of having my Cocoa Pops or Cheerios or whatever it was, I would just have oats and like some some berries and some nuts. And, you know, it, it kind of looked pretty, It kind of made me feel good that I was making a change. And uh, my mum could see that I was <laughs> eating this in breakfast. I was staying at home at the time. Um, and then, you know, I would feel a little bit better in the morning. I'd find myself stacking less around 10 or 11. I'd find myself a little bit more energetic after, you know, doing a long ward round. I would be, you know, less sort of, uh, inclined to have to go grab a, a chocolate bar to perk up my energy. And then that led to the next change, which is, okay, well, I'm going to take my Tupperware in. I'm going to start having leftovers from the night before. And I'm going to start like experimenting with different recipes. And I've always been a foodie throughout my whole life. Like I love food always. We always had like the food channel, uh, Saturday kitchen in, in the, um, uh, on, on weekends and all the food shows that we grew up with, all that kind of stuff was always on, on our uh, TV, sh uh, on our TV. Cause mum was a massive foodie herself. Um, and so I applied that sort of like, uh, the adventurous side of cuisines to healthy cooking. Um, and I just kind of felt my way in the dark. I'd read stuff from even whether it was from men's health or some random blog in the internet, you know, I was just like putting things together because I wasn't taught any of this kind of stuff. And then I started reading studies and diving into PubMed and, and realizing all these different elements around nutritional science and just how impactful it, it, it was It was demonstrating to be. And were you on drugs at the same time? Like on I was, medication? Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was on a, a beta blocker and anti-arrhythmic, so something to change the regularity of my heart. And then I came off them because I had some side effects from them. So beta blockers, one of the main side effects can be uh, low mood. Um, and uh, in my case, it was there was also some fatigue as well. Um, and I, I remember coming off those and then I was meticulously keeping a diary of when I was having episodes, how long for, what I was doing prior to that, what foods I'd had, uh, what kind of state of mind I was in, all these different elements. And uh, I remember one day just waking up and, uh, and just looking at my, my diary and I was like, oh, it's been three months since I've had one. And that turned into five months and then 10 months and then you know, I haven't and, had and so, so it was since. the it was really was the lifestyle aspect. That yeah, was yeah, it big. was massively, yeah. But you know, there's a confluence of multiple different things. I think my bias is clearly nutrition, right? But at the same time, I'd started practicing yoga. I'd started meditating again so my parents taught me how to meditate when during my gcses so i was 15 16 and very simple meditation like breathe in breathe out be aware of your breath that kind of stuff because i was getting quite stressed during gcses it's a stressful time and um the uh the other things i was doing were changing up my workouts so i was doing less uh long runs and i started doing more strength and uh some hit training as well so there were all these different things I was doing that could have had an impact on my on my condition, um, but it's very hard to put your finger on one thing. That was it. And that's the thing with nutrition science in general. You know, people like to have a very binary view of how we can fix our bodies. Like, you got high blood pressure, you take this drug. Uh, you know, you got cholesterol issues, just take a statin. You know, we don't really think of the confluence of all the other variables that can impact that. The type of exercise you do, the type of diet you have, your relationships, your microbiota, your relationships, the stresses you have, how's that, how that is impacting your sugar levels and your blood. 
you know, all these different elements, your sleep quality, all these different elements have a, a combined impact on um, the, the, your state of, the, of your body and your risk of disease. And so I think that appreciation, that intuitiveness is something that we all need to teach ourselves. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, I'd love to. Okay, so we, so we we've camped it on food as medicine and understanding your hero's journey to get how you've kind of focused on food. But w- one thing which I think is so prevalent nowadays is stress. Mm. Like stress in each one of our lives, like stress is a factor. It's it's a it's a guest at each one of our tables. Yeah, and each of us is a different relationship. But if some of it's more acute, some of us don't even realize that we're super stressed. I don't realize I'm stressed quite a bit of the time. Yeah, um, and I just wondered, like, how do you see it crop up as a medical doctor, and how do you deal with stress in your life? Yeah, um, stress is like this huge umbrella term. I think that can relate to so many different things. You know, people can have financial stress, they can have emotional stress, they can have uh, physical stress. And as a doctor, it can manifest in so many different ways. When I'm in A&E, I see many people manifest their stress and chest pain. That doesn't mean they shouldn't come to A&E. It just means that there are other things I need to rule out before we settle on psychological issues being potentially one of the reasons as to why they have chest pain. Um, obviously, we do the, all the things to make sure it's not something more worrying than that. Uh, other people, it can manifest in skin conditions. It can manifest in gastritis. It can, you know, there's lots so, of so do you physical think it kind ways. Of, do you think it kind of almost the precursor is stress and then it manifests at some weak part in our body? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a weak part of your body, like you need to fix your gut or anything like that. But it's it's an interesting observation that I've seen of stress manifesting in many different ways. And pe- people can probably relate to a time when you've had an immense period of stress and then suddenly you get a cold, you know? Or, you, or I think a lot of people can relate to that idea of the holiday. You're really, really busy. You're yeah. so busy at work. And then you go on holidays and then, oh, I'm sick for two weeks on my yes, holidays. Yes, yes. Like, I think that's a really common yeah. one. Because you're like, you know, there's a, that uh, well-known saying, you're running off fumes, where you're running off cortisol, you're running off your, your, you know, your adrenal glands firing on all cylinders. And that keeps you perked up for an amount, uh, j- just amount of time. And then as soon as you take your, your foot off the gas, that's when you, you, you essentially... Um, reveal your immune system's vulnerabilities and that's when you can get a common cold or whatever it might be so i think a lot of people can can relate to that and it just just that very simple silly example reveals how intertwined our psychological mindset is to our our physical body you know whether it is our immune system or our cardiovascular system or our, our brain health you know these are all things that that come together um, and to answer your question about stress, absolutely. I think there's many things that we are stressed about in in today's day and age, whether it be finances or emotions or whatever. I think one of the best antidotes that I've come to use personally is gratitude. And people are probably sick to death of me talking about gratitude, but I freaking love gratitude. I I'd think love to. Hear, I'd love to hear more about it because we haven't yeah. we haven't gone that deep I, into gratitude. I, on I podcast, think anyway. you know when I. I mean, my my wife sometimes thinks uh, I. Uh, are you going to gratitude it away, yeah, Ruby? Yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah, Ruby. Exactly, you can't yeah, grat- pay your mortgage and yeah, yeah. thoughts. I remember saying this, and I, I I reflect on it now, and I think it was definitely um, the wrong way to deliver it. So it was during COVID. 
And uh, I, I was going into hospital every day, working in, in A&E, helping at an ITU as part of this. Um, we had a team called the Family Relationship uh, Team. And we would be relaying the um, unfortunate sort of situation of many patients who are in ITU to their family What's members. What's ITU? ITU is intensive care. Okay. And the reason why is because if you think of a normal ITU environment, your, your family members can go and visit, you know, you can you know, sort of take care of them a little bit, put, you know, pictures up and all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously that had to completely shut down in COVID. So they couldn't even come into the hospital and they didn't have any direct communication with anyone about the ventilator settings or how much oxygen they were on or what drugs they were on or, you know, whether they were going the right way or the wrong way. And so they had to assemble a team of people who had ITU experience to relay that information back to the the the, um, uh, the family members. And so pretty much every day I was breaking bad news, you know, just constantly talking to people about how it was on a knife edge and, you know, we had no idea about what the the patient journey could have looked like and whether they're going to die or not. Like all the, it was pretty harrowing having these conversations again and again, obviously more so for the, the families rather than myself. Um, but I remember like going back home and speaking to my wife about it. And I was like, it, I've never been so grateful for this period of time during COVID for me, it, it was enlightening. It was a real, enlightening moment in my life that made me realize a lot of things that I take for granted. And I think that was probably delivered the wrong way to her because for her, her whole life was turned upside down. She was used to going to work, having a lifestyle, and now she's cooped up in a, and she's a, someone who's quite extroverted and she thrives with other people and seeing other people. And I was in quite a privileged position where I could still go to work. Although I was doing you know a, a big job, I was still having that interaction. Um, but for for me, I, I've tried to practice gratitude in every moment of my life as much as possible because that is the pure antidote for me for stress. And there are a lot of stresses and pulls in our time today. And the ways I do it is every single day I do a gratitude exercise. I think of three things that I'm grateful for today. It will be the fact that I tried a pak choy flour. Oh, yeah, it was a grab. You know, nice, the it? fact that we had a, a swim in the morning. I mean, there's loads of things I've been grateful for today. We had that beautiful lunch just now where we had like six, seven people around a table that just sort of came together and we had great food. You know, I'm going to be on a flight. The fact that I get to jump on a plane and go from Ireland to London, uh, from Dublin to London, you know, like that level of travel, that level of, of uh, comfort I have, you know, these are things that we don't really think about. The fact that we're in this room and it's like the environment is temperature controlled and we're having this wonderful conversation that's going to be shared with loads of people. These are things that we don't, we don't, we take for granted. And I, I guarantee you, anyone listening to this who has the privilege of working out in the gym and listening to it on AirPods or in a car and they're, they're driving to a place and they get to listen to this conversation or they're with a loved one whilst they're listening to this. There is something in that moment that they should be grateful for. The fact that they can even hear this. This is amazing. Amazing, amazing things are happening every single second of our lives. And I love that. I it's absolutely a love that. a beautiful antidote to stress because ultimately, like gratitude is almost like a spiritual practice because stress typically comes from we're not accepting what's happening in our lives at yeah. the moment. And to be grateful, you're almost flipping the coin. You're almost going, not only am I accepting it, I'm actually celebrating it. I'm mm. actually embracing it so in a way it really is 
like a spiritual practice, the ability to see it from the total other side. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Like, and it's like, also, it's like stress is related to not being in the present moment. Typically, you're in the future, yes, or you're in the past, or you're not really here and now. Whereas gratitude is going right. I'm sitting in this room. Jeez, I'm sitting in a lovely chair. Yeah, it's lovely and bright outside. I'm having a great chat with the lads. Like you know, like there's there's so much when you break it down to now. And you know, I I talk about this with um. Not to blame my wife for everything, <laughs> but you know, uh, uh, she um, she's really affected by the weather, right? So she, she's Australian. Who's used yeah, she's to, Australian, used exactly. To so she's weather. used to like this fine weather and stuff. And when it's raining, you know, it's it's understandable to go, oh, it's raining. Oh, it's grey. Oh, look at the weather. Oh, isn't that something to just something to like, you know, take the step out of your uh, of of your day, right? Whereas I look at that grey sky and I look at that drizzly rain that we tend to have in London with complete joy in that we're not being over flooded. We don't live in a in a part of the world that is uniquely exposed to flooding because of what we're doing to cl the climate. We are having rain that's going to water our crops. You know, it's going to be refreshing when I go outside. Uh, I'm going to be able to use my raincoat that's going to keep me warm and dry. You know, <laughs> you know all these different things. I literally think in my head, woohoo. But like, but it's, it's hard. I've got a new pair of wellies and I cannot wait to test drive them. And, and I, honestly, it's like, it's, it's these small, silly examples that build up to a much stronger resilience when something really bad happens. So if I was to put myself in a, a similar situation, God forbid it never happens, where... I have a serious heart condition again. I'm gonna look at that present moment through the lens of gratitude always. And if I was to go back into the point where I was being wheeled through a hospital and I was hooked up to a cardiac monitor and I was, you know, frustrated at the fact that there's nothing wrong with me, I'm not overweight, I'm normal, why is this happening to my heart? This is unfair, all that kind of stuff that can compound in your head and lead to immense stress. I start to unpack it a little bit. The fact that, you know, I'm in this bed and I'm not paying for anything. I'm, it's part of the NHS and I'm having the wonderful service from this healthcare staff or this doctor who's actually a friend of mine and they get to have this interaction and I get to know them uniquely. Or the fact that, you know, I, I am gonna be on this suite of drugs and this is actually something that I wouldn't have had access to 20 years ago because these are relatively new medications. You know, all these different elements that I could potentially pick out now because of the gratitude practice of those silly examples that we we're just talking about. Building up the muscle. That have made me a lot more resilient to stresses. Mm. Something I do and with the kids. It's something I do with the kids every night. Yeah. We what do, what do you do with the kids? We do every night before we go to bed. And even May's 12 and she still does it. She's a little bit resentful of it now. But we say a prayer in Polish and then we all have to say five things we're grateful for. And we've been doing it for, I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight years. It's amazing. And it, was, it was just to try to build that resilient muscle in them and that, to see life through the lens of... And, and in a way, you get to hear about their day. Like yeah, I, hear, yeah. I hear things at that prayer more about, like May typically is kind of somewhat introverted. She doesn't tell that much what's going on, but she'll say little things. And like, what happened there, May? Did you, what, what? You're like, well, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. So it ends up sometimes a little like evening prayer gratitude can end up taking 20 minutes because there's chats and all sorts of bits and it's real like a moment to reflect in your day. That's nice. fab. That's fabulous. Yeah, and you're awesome. building that muscle, you're building that resilience and it's doing more for them, their ability to maintain um, 
their their mood than than anything you know i mean obviously with the exercise and nutrition you could talk about you know, the brain gut um, pathways and all that kind of stuff but like simple acts like that i think are like wonderful and perhaps taken for granted mm-hmm. um you know this this mismatch between expectation um and reality that mo Gauda, have you spoken to mo Gauda? Yeah, yeah 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 so you know i think about that formula all the time and I always try and reframe uh, my day such that my happiness or my resilience, my resilience isn't conditional on things like the weather. It's not conditional on things going my way. It's not conditional on, you know, my, my flight got cancelled uh, today, for example. And the old me would have been like freaking out or like, you know, bloody British Airways, cancel my bloody flight, less than 12 hours. How dare they do that? You know, in my mind, it was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going on Ryanair now. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, it, you know, th- those little like. Am these... I so blessed I've got 200 euro to buy a flight <laughs> home? Am yeah. I so lucky? Yeah, exactly. It's these little moments that that grace our day, that give us a chance to practice gratitude. So a negative moment for me is an opportunity to to really focus in and practice gratitude. And look, I'm not perfect, right? Like I still get annoyed, at, you know, at little things in the house or things that are like dirty here. I'm like, why is this happening? Or, you know, if someone sends me like a, sh- a shitty email, like it still gets me, it still grates me. But I'm at the level now where it takes me a little moment, but I can step back. I can like, ah, oh, something negative has been triggering me. Oh, I wonder why that's happened. Oh, let me smile inside about it oh, what can I be grateful for? And then carry on. Do you know mm. what I mean? And is there much kickback from like, say you as a medical doctor, like understanding the, an appreciation of the importance of gratitude and kind of almost like, almost like kind of not a spiritual practice, but it's the ultimate acceptance and celebration of what's happening now. But you, you can't even put it, you know, the way like, you know, food is obviously, food has become part of medicine now. Mm. You know, as you said, there's lifestyle medicine being taught at Imperial College. Like mindset, you said mindset is part of lifestyle medicine. And I guess gratitude has to be part of mindset because yeah. ultimately, you know, most of us are hardwired in our society to think that money, fame, these are the things that are going to make you happy. Yeah. Then you're successful. Yeah. You've got status. Wow. Then you're definitely going to be happy. But ultimately, I think mindset and this idea of this gratitude, being able to cultivate an inner space which is at peace and at ease, irrelevant to what's going on. Like that is real success yeah. from my definition of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I wonder how far we are away from I mean, I, 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 speaking personally, like I want to be able to be in... Uh, an uncomfortable situation, whether it be, I don't know, being stuck in an airport lounge for four or five hours and still have uh, a- an amazing time. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't necessarily mean be- me being an extrovert and high-fiving everyone and all the rest of it. Just me in my own mind, even if I'm quiet, to be absolutely at peace Content, in yeah. an uncomfortable scenario or whether it's pain or wherever it might be. That's where I want to get to. And I think we're always striving towards that, right? And I think to bring it back to medicine, there is a much greater appreciation for self-care and it's being reflected in the types of courses that are being offered, the types of conversations that are happening, uh, happening particularly post-pandemic, where a lot more people are checking in with each other and actually understanding the impact of the job on our, on our mental health. I think the junior doctor strikes right now is a recognition not just about the physical conditions, not just about the financial hardships but also about the 
need to recognize that the the mental resilience and actually look after that i'm a firm believer that we should go to a three to four day work week i think it's unnatural to work ourselves five to six days a week you know 11 12 hours a day but but then but then i would say that you know the way redefining that word of work like if you look at the root of the yeah. word work in certain cultures it there, it is not that kind of typical association now which is hardship and grind yeah and like work you know in in some cultures it, it is an aspect of creativity and there's an expressive aspect to it so i think i think that that can be part of the story as i well. think that can and be. most of us a lot of us aren't in that privileged situation it is a real privilege to be able to totally yeah totally and i think we're probably both in that privileged position right now where you know i'm on my sabbatical from medicine as i have been for the last year um work for me feels like play right like you know, I record a podcast, I do research, I wake up at the time I want to, I take breaks when I want to, I work freaking hard, you know, probably longer hours than I would do in medicine, but it feels like play to me. But I think there are some instances where people perform work, like working shifts in a busy hospital where you're constantly attention switching and you're dealing with drug delivery, prescription, patient complaints admin issues constantly for 12 hours straight that for me is pretty unsustainable and i think whilst you can soften it with uh, a grateful approach that improves your resilience in those scenarios i think it would be inhumane to constantly experience that for five six days a week as we are currently right now probably lo much longer than that actually long days are you know seven to ten days in, in certain circumstances so reframing jobs like medicine where there is a a, a real sort of um pull on on our attention and pull on our cognitive uh, abilities is something that i think we need uh, a a different sort of working week structure for Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yes, except please. I look at our our work weeks and like, I like work is I, I I've all, we've consciously had a different way of framing it from the start. We used to always call it playing shop. We were playing shop, yeah, so yeah, consciously yeah. use the word play instead yeah. of work. But I look now like we're like farmers, like and we are farmers because we do work on a farm and we have farmers, a farm. Yeah, but like I, I like I just see work as part of my day. Like it's yeah. part of my life. It's not separate to my life. I don't work and then live. Yeah, it's just life. Like life is this. It's it's just part of life. There's things and you got to figure out how to find joy in the challenges and the understanding and the growth and these various aspects. Definitely, yeah. And actually, it's really interesting. So I was at a, a conference recently. It was full of, um, and, and this is why I feel that there is a greater appreciation for uh, gratitude and the the more subjective elements of, of well-being. Because there's a whole conference dedicated to self-care. And during these self-care um, presentations, any consultants, because this is uh, uh, for seniors. It was specifically for seniors because... So over 60? Uh, no, 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 senior practitioners. So okay. people who are consultants or senior registrars, uh, pe people who are sort of at the higher tiers of seniority within the hospital. So that ranges from typically you know, 35 upwards. Um, and w within this, uh, there were multiple presentations from consultants about their practices. And some of these guys are, are working in trauma centers um they're they're working in very high pressured environments and they're talking about you know the time when you you go and wash your hands between a patient you know just that that those micro moments 20 seconds there's 20 mm. seconds where you, you wash your hands like that's a moment to be mindful so they're literally talking about this today 
they are appreciating all these different elements. They practice it themselves. They might not talk about it with patients just yet, but they definitely appreciate it for themselves. And I think that's the first step on the journey because I had to appreciate nutrition and, and, and meditation and mindset and all that kind of stuff myself and practice it myself and overcome my own issues before I even talked about it with patients. I don't think it always needs to be like that. And I don't think everyone has to go on their health journey to be able to talk to patients about it. But certainly whilst it's not part of the core medical curricula across the country or across the world, these are, these are things that can, can push us forward. Amazing. Okay. Anyone listening? I just want one. Anyone who's listening might go, gratitude. Amazing. I'm up for it. Right. Rupee, medical doctor, rational side. What are three or five things that someone can do that's kind of going to just get started on this gratitude journey? Yeah. I mean, like, I do gratitude every day where I just, I think of three things. That and I'm do you think it or do you write day. it down? I think it, but I used to share it on Instagram. So I shared it for like 700 days straight uh, on my stories. And uh, that was a good way of keeping myself accountable. So, and would you mix uh, it up, or was it the same three things that I'm? No, no, for I'd make I'd mix it up. And actually, there was a like um, that kind of uh, pressure. Probably, well, the fact that I was doing it publicly led me to hold back on a few things. Um, so, and I just started dating Rochelle at the time, my wife, my now my wife. So I didn't really want to talk about that elements, even though I was really grateful for some of the experiences that we were having and the moments and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it'd be stupid little things like, you know, well, not stupid, but, you know, someone smiled at me, uh, the cashier, whilst I was doing my shopping in the supermarket. You know, th those little micro moments that you'd otherwise forget, they, they, they lose their importance in the existence of your life. And I still remember that moment. It's so funny. I, I you know, I, I've just vocalized that now and I've got that snapshot in my mind of that as a happy memory alongside all the other memories that are you know, typically seen as as, as grander or, or more important. It's it's still in there, my memory. So sharing three things that I'm grateful for every single, every day, myself, if you can write it down, great. But, you know, if you just think about it, if you've got no moments to write things down or you don't want to write it down, you can just think it, that's totally fine. I think sharing uh, across a dinner table is is something that is, uh, is a practice that me and my wife do every night. So we'll sit down and be like, you know, what was the best thing that happened to you today? Or what's a, what's a positive moment? Particularly if you've had like, you know, a particularly hard day or whatever. Um, those, those are probably the two things that I do myself to practice gratitude. The other thing is it takes a lot of patience and a lot of time to catch yourself in the moment, to catch yourself when you're going down that, that sort of, uh, the, 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 there is a catalyst that can can um, lead to a vicious cycle of negative thought patterns. Kind of poor um, me. The what? Poor me. Why did that happen to me? Exactly. And I know, and I know even in the context of like having a conversation and sharing it over dinner, I know I've definitely tried that before and got that. I'm not in the mood to play your stupid games now. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. Well, I'm really people. grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really grateful. <laughs> I'm for grateful you. for the honesty. And then you're going to get it. Then yeah. you're going to get it now. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of shit that I got when I was practicing my gratefulness. Can you imagine my mates, like my mates from uni and stuff, like, oh, look at Rupi practicing his gratefulness so grateful. every day, exercises. And like, you know, I'd be getting WhatsApp messages from mates, like, oh, yeah. I'm grateful for whatever today, my, my trip to Magaluth coming up or, you know, yeah, yeah. Totally. So you, you just got to take that and smile.
Totally. Yeah. Like I think that like the like often when we'll do talks, I'll often finish with like people might ask like what are two superfoods that I should try to consume more, and they expect you to go goji berries or yeah, turmeric yeah. or something like go laughter and joy. Mm. And I think these are things that are true vital polyphenols for our health. Mm. And that there's something that are undermined and that are never really focused on laughter, joy, friendship. I think these are the true things. And yeah, I wonder totally. like is there much talk of this type of thing in medical literature or are these still even more the qualitative and the less quantifiable aspects no, of I think th- I think build there a is. resilient human? No, I honestly think there is. I think there is a real a- appreciation for community, the sense of purpose. Uh, you know, I think the Blue Zones revealed a lot to us. It's not just about nutrition. Uh, the, the silly example is like, you know, I consume magnesium or I can consume uh, a dark green leafy vegetable. So I consume magnesium depending on what form it is, whether it's a magnesium citrate or, or a salt in a foot or, bath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or the mode of it as well. It's going to affect the absorption of it. It's going to affect the, the impact on my body. And it's going to have that that one or magnesium is probably not the best example, but let's just assume it's just going to affect one singular part pathway and uh, and that's going to deliver a, you know the effect whereas if you have it in the whole form you're not just getting magnesium you you're, you're going to be getting sulforaphane and isothiocyanates and all these other uh, all these other wonderful ingredients that lead to why dark leafy greens are so so healthy for us and so that has the multimodal effect that is impacting multiple different pathways simultaneously and so that's why consumption of that ingredient is going to be uniquely beneficial compared to just having a magnesium supplement every day which is the same thing with things like laughter and purpose and community these are having these multimodal effects they're impacting our brain they're impacting our sense of self they're impacting our hormonal pathways they're impacting our gut they're impacting our inflammation they're impacting all these other things that yes are quite hard to quantify it's not like i can give you a dose of laughter or i can give you a dose of community but that but when you when you scratch away at the surface and you actually lean into why this might be having an impact on health outcomes then you realize that these are having not only mechanical um literal uh uh, impacts on our body but also psychological impacts as well that impact you know one's health outcomes so these things can't be understated but it, it is hard to measure and I think when you put it through the the, the lens of evidence based measure uh, evidence based medicine, it is it is something that would you'd struggle to find a, a paper on it because typically this, papers are funded by people well, with money. I, I, I think it's not even that. It, I think it's just very hard to yeah, to quantify it. to to create to a study. Through, that. Yeah, to to put through the the mechanisms that we have designed to to test um, interventions um, because those are typically used for medications or supplements or, or, or diet, whatever, not even diet. It's very hard to do it with diet as well, which is why there's so much controversy within medicine, um, nutrition, sorry. But I think all these different things require us to yes, lean into the evidence, but also appreciate a bit of common sense, you know, like, of course it's going to have an impact. Of course it's going to, you know, lead to better health But that's easy for you to say as a medical doctor, common sense, like, because you've gone about <laughs> My as far as you can go. Common sense isn't very common. Yeah, but that's <laughs> most people's, you know, like, because you, you obviously have gone as far, like, compared to the population of the planet, you've gone about as far as you can go in terms of, like, rational medicine, like, understanding all that. So it's very easy for you. Well, common sense, of course, like, hugs yeah. and laughter and joy are going to only improve your immune system and everything. 
And like all of us know that experientially, but sometimes when you feel crap, you definitely, you know, it might not be, it isn't something you turn to, you turn to, you might turn to a chocolate bar or something. Whereas if someone made you laugh, like that can just have such, it can just, it can add so much energy and stress relief and so many other aspects of things. So, yeah, 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 no, definitely. Yeah. I, I think when I, when I say common sense, I'm really thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, one studying this or one measuring its impact. It's like, the common sense comes into it where of, co of course it's going to have an impact on one's ability to stave off disease or, you know, improve their, um, there were some really interesting studies that, um, uh, Dr. David Hamilton talked to me about on the podcast. Have you, have you had Dr. Hamilton? You should no. definitely speak to Dr. David Hamilton. Cool, he's right. amazing. So he's, a. Uh, uh, and a, a chemist who used to work for one of the big pharma companies who got fascinated by the placebo effect and really dived into why the placebo effect was so effective, in some cases more effective than the therapeutics that they were actually uh, intervening with. And that led him to um, find a real deep appreciation for the things that we typically think of as woo-woo. And in fact, his latest book is called Why Woo-Woo Works. You should definitely speak to him. Why Woo-Woo Works, Why what works. a name. It's a great name, right? It's a like great Like it's name. pretty much the science of belief. Like it's kind of almost Well, this that is the thing. So uh, he talked to me about a study, and I have to caveat this because these kind of studies are t typically very small. Uh, because the intervention is uh, something like, you know, belief, like, okay, you're going to imagine what's happening to your body when you're taking this particular tablet or intervention. It's, you know, or whether it's chemo. There was an example, actually, when he used chemotherapy. It was like, you're going to imagine this chemotherapy going into your body and it's going to be eating away the cancer cells and, you, you know, it, it, you're, you're going to feel uh, a lot healthier for it and all that kind of stuff. That was the intervention for one group. And the other group just got standard chemotherapy, the same type, it was, there was no differences. And what they found was a statistically uh, significant difference in the patient population who were told to visualize the benefits of chemotherapy when they're having it. Now, very small study, very hard to prove uh, a literal effect, and that hasn't been replicated. So it suffers from all these other issues that could confound that as a result. But interesting nonetheless, that visualization may have an impact on the efficacy of some of the the medications that we give to people so it just get, pushes us in the direction of okay other things that we can do in this arena another example that uh, again I, I believe has been repeated is um have you heard of the milkshake study with no. alicia crumb from stanford university so in 2009 i, I don't want to get this wrong now but um 2009 uh her professor uh, crumb and her colleagues they uh did something that is now called the milkshake study so they they gave uh two different milkshakes um to uh the same cohort of people so the milkshake one was uh um a chocolate milkshake that was uh full of fat um like luxury style like you know it was bubbling it like you know it looked really unctuous all singing all dancing yeah it was like you know they described it, it as like, oh, so luxury you know if if um what's a luxury brand of uh, of chocolate or whatever. Let's let's just say it was a like you know a, a really high fat delicious milkshake. So they gave them this, and they uh, measured their hunger levels and satiety levels after two hours. And they, what you tend to see is when you have a big milkshake like that, um, that's like nine hundred calories. Let's say your satiety level is going to go right down. 
right? Because like satiation, is that? Yeah, satiation, okay. exactly. So there are certain hormones that are released after having um, these milkshakes or food or whatever, and it goes up and down. The second milkshake that were given to the same cohort of people, this was a disgusting diet milkshake. It was low calorie, 300 calories. It was insipid. It was, you know, it's going to taste horrible. It's going to be manky, whatever, whatever. Um, and they measured, again, the same uh, levels of hormones in their blood. So it's not something you can fake. It's not like they're doing a subjective measure of how hungry you feel after having this disgusting milkshake. The numbers don't lie. And so the satiety levels uh, were, were raised. So actually, you know, after having like a diet milkshake, um, you're not going to feel that hungry. You're still going to feel hungry afterwards. The kicker was that the milkshakes were identical. So it was the same milkshake. It was the same number of calories, the same ingredients, exactly the same. But because they were described completely differently, physiologically, they had a completely different effect on their biology. Wow. Completely different effect. So the perception element, the way in which we describe healthy eating, this is actually something I spoke about in my, in my latest book. This is a good segue to that. But the perception of how you eat your food can literally impact your physiology, literally impact your satiety levels. And I find that amazing. And I don't think we know as much as we should do about the impact of perception in medicine. Because you can imagine if I tell you this drug that I'm going to give you is going to completely flatline your cholesterol, it's going to massively reduce your, your sugar levels in your blood. Would that have an impact on the literal, uh, the literal levels uh, after I described it like that? Who knows? That study hasn't been done. But in that particular example, I found that particularly fascinating. That's, it really is amazing. Yeah, like, that's yeah. really fun. It's a really it's exciting, exciting. really exciting. famous study. Yeah, the milkshake study. Yeah. yeah. And then so how does that, how does the perception and how does that impact? Like you you, you mentioned your lovely segue. Uh, how, like in, in your new book, where Cooks. you talk about, it's called Cooks and you yeah. kind of talk about how how we as a society can come together to actually enjoy and create much pleasure yeah. around healthy food as a way, as opposed to seeing it as I'm on some diet. Yes. Doctor has meat and all these foods yeah, that yeah, are, yeah. Oh, well, this is the thing. It, it kind of circles back to what big food understand and lean into. They create anticipation and they create um, FOMO around uh, certain types of processed foods. Like they describe the crunch, the the spice level, the whatever, whatever it might be. They spend tons of money on like creating the most perfected burgers and like moist you know, crunchy looking, um, uh, whatever it might be, the images of food that you see plastered on bus stops and all the rest of it. They spend an immense amount of time because they know that's going to increase the anticipation and the desirability of said foods. We kind of need to do that with healthy eating, I feel. And I think we lean too much into talking about the health benefits of food rather than what people actually like it's about eating, which this is, is the taste. delicious. Exactly. Is... We're hardwired to absolutely love food, right? Um, and if we describe it as this is cholesterol lowering or this is going to improve your microbiota, yes, yeah, some people, uh, it makes some people feel better, absolutely. But really what I've leaned, to, leaned into in this book is describing the flavors, the textures, the crunch, the history of the food, the fact that this is indulgent, the fact that it should feel like a celebration. And yes, it is healthy, 
But the the primary focus is to really dive into that foodie element because instead of healthy eating being something that you described as, you know, solitary, punitive, restrictive, Pious. something that I should do, it's actually something that we should really enjoy. It's something that we want to celebrate with. And that's why actually in the last section of, of the book, Dr. Ruby Cooks, it's healthy feasts because I want people to celebrate with healthy food. You know, the kind of food that we were eating at the cafe earlier, that's like celebration food to me. And so, you know, for me, we've done like a, a Mediterranean spread. We've got like a, a, a an express Indian feast where you can knock it up in like 80 minutes and there's like a big masala cauliflower and there's like a big pot of lentils and there's like sag with the tarka, which is all the spices and oil that you deliver all over the top of it. I'm salivating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, when you look at the imagery, it's like jumping off the page because I want you to dive into the flavor of the book rather than just the health elements. The health elements are still there. You know, it's three portions of vegetables per serving. There's plenty of diversity. It's whole food. You know it's going to improve your microbiota. You know it's good for blood sugar. You know it's good for inflammation. That's all a given with Doctor's Kitchen recipes. But I really want to dive into the flavor element because that's going to create consistency in how often you eat this food every week. And that's really what I want people to to, to dive into with this. Yeah, in terms of like basics like there you've just said one of the keys to kind of health is mm. consistency mm. what are other keys to anyone listening that you kind of think that okay so plants animals where does that sit yeah so i'm plant forward yeah uh, so yeah yeah lovely so, way of describing it yeah yeah i'm i'm huge plant forward i've recently turned pescatarian um because i got nutmeg. a little dog <laughs> nutmeg got you yeah nutmeg got me she reminds me of a little lamb and i think my relationship with um killing animals has um been affected by that and i think i'm on my own sort of journey with that respect from a health point of view the more plants the better i don't think it necessarily needs to be 100 percent plants uh and it doesn't doesn't necessarily need to include animals either um i think it can go both ways and it really depends on the individual are you a big believer in beans and whole grains 100 100 big believer in getting fiber diversity whole diversity kind of aiming for more than 30 yeah, so the, so the the sort of what you would have heard from the American uh, gut plan. study is diversity. And I think that is part of the picture, but I don't want people to think, okay, if I have a teaspoon of butternut squash and a teaspoon of kale <laughs> and a teaspoon of this, then I'm getting my 30 points because you can play it, play the system. You can play the system that way. And Silver it, bullet. Yeah, yeah. You, and there isn't, you can't just do that. And you can't just take like, you know, your, your dehydrated supplement powder and, you know, have that as your, th it has to be whole fruits, vegetables, plants, nuts, seeds, that kind of stuff and, and spices and a as portion. well. Yeah, yeah. And you really want to be aiming for a hybrid of, yes, diversity and anything above 30 is great, but also the actual literal portion size. So the um, uh, there was a study by, uh, it was Imperial researchers that looked at the quantity of fruit and vegetables that we should be consuming every day. And the optimum level was actually around 800 grams of uh, fruits and vegetables. You guys are absolutely fine. Uh, but that correlates to around uh, 10 portions of uh, fruit and vegetables. And look, that includes beans, that includes lentils, that includes sprouts, that includes whole whatever beans, yeah. whole uh, fruits and vegetables you can find your, yourself. And actually, it is very simple to get to, but it sounds really intimidating, right? When we're used to five a day. So getting as close as you can to 10 a day is, is, I think, a really good aspirational quota, along with the diversity element as well. And then I, I think another element is um, unprocessing your diet as much as possible. We 
unintentionally consume quite a lot of processed foods, whether it's the croissant, whether it's the uh, bar that's labeled as healthy because it's got protein in. Natural, healthy. Natural, healthy. Anything that has to scream at you that it's natural and healthy is generally natural. not natural or healthy, you know? So you want to be looking at the things that don't come in packages and they're just sat there at the uh, in the health food, or not the health food are, in the, in the supermarket or wherever you get your fruits and vegetables from. Um, that's what you'll be leaning into and that's where you want to spend more of your money. So yeah, th those kind of elements. But I think what we've been chatting about today gratitude joy community purpose these are all things that are just as important as as nutrition just as important as as uh, sleep and exercise but are perhaps forgotten because if you don't have that element then it's quite hard to you know um even even lean into the other stuff mm, yeah, yeah I'd, totally i like at lunch with a friend there a couple of days ago and he was saying that his dad had stage four cancer some mm. type of it and he said like it's amazing to watch, like, because he said he's living, he's just living the most incredible life. Like, it's whatever this diagnosis has done to him, he's just, he said he's dropped his ego and he's just like, he's just yes and so much joy. And he said, how do we, he said, as, as younger men, how do we try to adopt this philosophy that we can adopt this on a daily basis where it doesn't take a, a life-threatening event to kind of wake us up to go, wow. This is incredible. And I guess it's back to coming back to your gratitude. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. This. Those are definitely like sort of prescriptions that I would write for everyone. But I think you need to, sometimes you need to meet people where they're at. And I think for, you know, particularly if any medical professionals listening to this, um, it's hard to pack all this in the context of the time constricted clinic appointments that we have. 15 minutes, is that what it is? Not even that, eight to 10. Eight to ten, yeah, right? yeah, and we're usually running behind, so we're usually trying to catch up as well for the mornings and the and the afternoons as well. So it's eight to ten minutes to high teach people how to cook to make them <laughs> culinary literate. Yeah, culinary it's literate. Culinary literate. Healthy culinary literate. Yeah. and that's why, like you know, for for me, um, I think where I'm going to have most impact is like yes, writing books so people consume that in their own time. Uh, doing things like uh, your app podcasts, is brilliant. Well, your app, app is brilliant. Yeah, the Doctor's Kitchen app, which. I think will save a lot of people time, will push them in the right direction of like eating well every day. That's the whole goal of, of doing the app in the first place, but also upskilling people so they can look after themselves. Like I think the traditional model of medicine, whereby you have to go to an authority to learn how to look after yourself, but also be treated is something that we need to rethink. I think there's still obviously going to be a model where people should go somewhere if they need help. But we need to essentially push that further down the line and actually teach people to be culinary literate, health literate, you know, more intuitive about their body and actually more proactive in preventative medicine. Because there's a lot of stuff that we should be doing in society and at a community level before we entertain more aggressive measures in the form of pharmaceuticals and, and other interventions that are fantastic. But we should really be saving those for later on down the line when we need them when we truly need them yeah 100% agree and then for anyone listening who's kind of going okay yeah I do want to eat more veg I do want to eat more whole plant foods um, I got to start what do you say to these people that are kind of like it's hard where do I where do I go because I'm sure many people listening are going yeah I'm with you Rupi I just don't like vegetables and I, I, I don't know where to start yeah where would you I, I always tell people to start as small as possible you have to start as small as possible I started by just changing up my cereal and once I nailed 
that, that part of my diet weekly, and I could do that every single day, that's when I moved to the other start. A lot of people that go on like, you know, a 30-day diet plan or something, or they'll try and make radical changes like overnight. And I think that's the wrong, it definitely works for some people, but for a lot of people, it's the wrong methodology. You need to go super slow. And so the thing that I always talk to people about is mastering one meal at a time. So if you don't like, you know, beans or you don't like particular types of lentils, then don't start with that. Start with a salad. Start with just adding one portion of a vegetable to your regular meal. If you like making a spag bowl, then maybe try like adding mushrooms to it or courgette, you know, just those little graces, those little elements that you can add to a meal that you already make yourself. That's fantastic. If you don't cook yourself, then start cooking one meal. It doesn't even need to be healthy. And I know it might sound shocking for people, but honestly, as soon as you get into that kitchen, you become more kitchen confident. That's when you can actually move into another arena of like, okay, how do I healthify this? How do I add more green? How do I add more color to it? But until you get to that level, like you got to, you got to meet yourself where you're at. That's what I was, and I always try and personalize the advice to to the person in front of me. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, and you might disagree with me on this as well, because I think it leans into um, the utility of of tracking, um, is actually knowing where you're at. So doing a food diary for seven or fourteen days, and actually figuring out okay, where do I have processed food in my diet? Because most people probably wouldn't be able to answer the question, what did you have two days ago as a snack? Because we unconsciously will go into the kitchen and we'll grab a, a, a bar of chocolate that we've got for our kids or whatever. Like we, we do all this kind of stuff all the time. And so doing a food drawer and actually measuring where you're at and actually what you're eating, I think is a good practice. Another thing, and I know it, sounds, it might sound shocking for someone who, who thinks that the calorie tracking and calorie measuring sort of um, philosophy works for everyone. I, I actually think getting a broad strokes understanding of how much energy you're consuming every day, even though it's full of inaccuracies, even though depending on the, the food matrix, i.e. what form the food is in, can impact the absorbability of the energy, having a very ballpark understanding of how much how much energy you're consuming in a 24-hour period is quite useful for people because if what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed managed right and um you know i've done this recently as well and i realized that i'm actually eating quite a lot of energy but i i probably need that because you know like you guys probably not as much as you guys but i'm running around a lot i'm going to the gym a lot i'm training a lot you know i i, I do a lot of cardiovascular exercise so for me it works but for for a lot of people, I think they're quite um they they don't have a, an understanding of just what and how much they're the consuming. basics yeah yeah the basics yeah. absolutely mm -hmm. so those are those are the things I would say it's like you know what can you what's the smallest thing you can do to uh, add or move yourself in the direction of more whole foods and more more plant focused if you don't even know how to cook then try cooking anything and then if you are cooking then mastering one healthy meal at a time is wonderful. And then getting some broad uh, understanding of what your week looks like and what energy you're consuming on a week-by-week -week basis is, is something that's quite sounds useful. Right. They're good, very, really very applicable. You know, yeah. even anyone listening could pick, oh, that one sounds nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
Good on Rupee. Fair play. <laughs> so, so tell us about your app. Will you tell everyone about your app? Oh, yeah, app, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Doctor's Kitchen app, I launched it last year. Um, we bootstrapped and it. And as a doctor launching it, is, that's good and courageous. Yeah, it's, oh, man. It's been a um, labor of love, man. We like we created our own nutrition calculator for it as well because we realized a lot of nutrition calculators are quite uh, outdated. Like, I don't want to name the big ones, but everyone's heard of the big ones. Um, and there's quite a few inaccuracies in those. The calorie measuring calories of different foods is, is quite inaccurate anyway. So um, we have different health goals. So skin, uh, mental well-being, brain health, heart health. And what we do with our independent research team is we look through the dietary patterns and ingredients that align with those, those different health goals. So we look through sometimes thousands of different nutrition studies. We pull out the ones that are the most robust and most relevant for that health goal. And we're transparent about all the studies that we use. So you can find them on the doctorskitchen.com website. Um, I've even done podcasts on how we went through those different um, processes as well. So you will see like for inflammation, for example, we use something called the dietary inflammation score. The um, uh, This is a measure of the inflammatory index of different foods. And so anything in that health category is net negative inflammation. Um, we use like the modified uh, Mediterranean diet score for our, um, uh, brain health, for example. Um, and the whole aim of the app is to help people to eat well every day. So in the future, just the way we're, we're moving towards is um, you'll be able to say, get me doctor's kitchen recipes for next week. And it will understand that you might have high cholesterol or you have high blood pressure and it will curate your meals for you and perhaps the whole family to ensure that it is in line with that health goal. It's in line with your budget. It's in line with your taste preferences. It's in line with your dietaries. It knows what days you're going to be in and out. And it also can integrate with supermarkets or wherever your market is to have those ingredients delivered to you. And so that for me, I think, is the future of how we get people eating well every day with obviously some flex in there as well for when you want to splurge on a delicious, you know, pasta meal or wherever it might be, or you want to go out, you know, we want it to fit into your lifestyle rather than it to be something that is rigid or inflexible. Um, so yeah, this is what we're working towards. And like, I really feel that doubling down on the digital side of Doctor's Kitchen is something that's going to have the biggest impact and something that we can hopefully scale as well. Amazing. Well done, well brilliant. Done. Yeah, you're some man. You're great. I oh, appreciate you guys. <laughs> appreciate <laughs> you guys. <laughs> Very grateful. But thanks, Mel, for coming on, Rupee. Of you're course, man. Do check out Rupee. He's brilliant. Social media, he's written four books. Yeah, four cooks. The most recent yeah. one is Cooks, is your new one. Beautiful book. And uh, Doctor's Kitchen app is wonderful. Do check it out. Thank you, man. As is yours. <laughs> yeah. Fab. Cheers. Very good for you. Great. Yeah. Well, the well done, Rupee. Very good. Well done, you. Gratitude and the software. Yeah, I love it. Fascinating. Yeah, I love it. Like very interesting. Like.